Well, hi, friends. Hello. Hello. Hi, Carrie. <laughs> hi, Richard. We are gathered here today. No, uh, <laughs> we, we are gathered informally in our respective places to just uh, sort of say hi and uh, catch up with you, our listeners, and let you know what's been going on in our lives. Uh, you know, we're not dead yet. That's good, right? That's, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm just <laughs> resting my eyes. <laughs> I feel much better. Because you let me have my fan on, I'm also not dead yet. Good. Although I, I, I suppose we have an Aussie on the on the line. We should never complain about the heat. Right. No, it's minus one here, Celsius. That's degrees of temperature. Yeah. So did you say you had your air conditioner on? Did you mean your heater? Yeah. Well, it's a... Yeah, and it's a yeah. reverse cycle thing that uh, pumps hot air from outside into the inside and does the opposite nice. during summer. Mm. So I want to start with the obvious change. Richard, you have uh, a degree. I do. Yay! Thank Yay! you very much. Thank you very much. That was uh, you done. Yeah, well, it. it took me two and a half years to do a four year degree, and. Um, I've already started. In fact, I've been working for the past two months on the next phase, which is uh, I'm doing an honours year, which is at my university you can do a research project. If you're good enough, you've got to get high distinctions, get an average of uh, um, uh, a distinction across um, all your second and third year subjects. So you have to have a lot of high distinctions to be able to do that. Um, and then, uh, so I, I do a research project for a year. I had to propose, uh, a, an interesting project and, uh, I had to get one of the labs at the university to agree to sponsor me. And, and now I'm essentially a baby researcher for the next year working on this project. And if, uh, if I do well, if I get a high distinction, it, uh, it's, it, at my university, it's called first class honors. So it modifies, um, my bachelor's degree to be first class honours. Um, in America, I think it, it would be the equivalent of summa cum laude. And then, uh, if I can do that, then, um, automatically, um, I'll automatically get a spot for a PhD, uh, at my university or any other university I want to go to. So, um, so essentially it's just a stepping stone. I'm, I'm, I'm at phase one of three, um, in this little task of mine. And then, um, hopefully, if I can complete a PhD successfully, then uh, work as a postdoc in other people's labs for a while, and then uh, hopefully have a lab of my own down the road. So that's sort of my 10-year plan. That's incredibly wow. exciting. I think so. <laughs> What's your research project, Richard? So um, I during the, uh, during the summer... I did a so at university you could normally have two semesters a year. In between the semesters, there's like a, a one or two month break, and uh, you can do extra subjects to get through your degree quicker, which is basically how I did it. And so I did a research project or a summer research project with the computational chemistry team, and I was modeling the cell membrane of a neuronal cell. Well, Last semester, I did an extended project with the same lab modeling epithelial cells. And this has never, never been done before. Neuronal cells have been done before, but this, this, when this, this will actually become hopefully a, a published paper if it's accepted. And, um, it'll be the first time that a complex epithelial membrane has been modeled successfully. And that's being used wow. to, uh, so we've got a, a simulation of, uh, the ACE2 receptor, which, um, 
is on the outside of a lot of our cells, and it's how coronavirus gets into the cell. So it's got a receptor domain that binds onto our receptor, and then um, it gets into the cell. Well, we're, we've actually found that uh, the uh, the ACE2 uh, protein links with another protein, and, and they come in pairs. And so we're modelling this thing and looking at ways to disrupt um, the coronavirus's ability to latch onto your cells and get into them uh, by using drugs. So this is, it's all computational. So it's all in, in a computer. So it's not actually in real life. Um, these are not mm-hmm. in vivo uh, experiments. But what we're essentially doing is we're using supercomputers to model every atom on a, a little patch of the cell's membrane with these proteins attached and with the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And we're using Newtonian mechanics to essentially work out how how each atom moves around uh, in response to other atoms around it. And that gives us, it's almost like looking using a microscope to look at an atomic level at uh, bits of cells. So it's fascinating. Wow. So uh, that was my... Um, that was my recent project, which was the epithelial cell. Uh, and uh, the other thing I'm doing is I'll be modeling the inner mitochondrial membrane. Now, this has not been done on a complex membrane ever. Um, and uh, so it, the mitochondria is a little organelle inside all of our cells that uh, makes energy. It turns uh, glucose mm-hmm. and fatty acids into ATP. Um, so it's a little energy powerhouse. And they're actually little captured bacteria that one of our ancestors about, uh, you know, uh, 1.5 billion years ago, um, captured and, and incorporated into itself. And, and these little bacteria, have, they've lost a lot of their nuclear codes. Um, so all they're able to do is make energy that they're not really, uh, don't have any other, uh, function other than producing energy for the, for ourselves. Uh, but this, um, these little things they have uh they they u- have unique membranes like bacteria they don't have um membranes uh, you know um uh, eukaryotic membranes they've got uh bacterial membranes and so this uh model is essentially what I'll be doing is looking at how the inner mitochondrial membrane changes depending on diet that is so cool and very relevant <laughs> i think so well it's going to be good because uh if i can show that if you eat more or less saturated fat uh that your membrane is thicker or thinner then i can i can propose possibly a link between the kinds of fat we eat and and mitochondrial disease which is kind of uh uh, part of the metabolic syndrome. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, and leads to cancer and all those other nasty well, things. Well, it certainly leads to diabetes. So, you know, that's kind of very interesting. Yeah. To me. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's, that, that's essentially what I've been doing. So, yeah, fun, 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 fun. Wow. And kind of my old career as well as sort of bumping into things because it's all on supercomputers. And, right. And so, you know, it's all computational, which is kind of cool. That's very cool. So you're actually getting to write code or are you just sort nah. of using cool programs? No, nah, I write a bit of Python code every now and then to uh, to write analysis tools. Um, we're working with very large um, uh, amounts of data. And so you need to pretty much use um, computational tools to, to sift through mm-hmm. and do your analysis. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm not actually writing any actual code, uh, although the, um, there's a possibility that tool that we use is all written in C and it's all open source. And it, you know, it, it, there may be an opportunity down the road for me to do some C programming 
there as well, which could be cool. Neat. Neat, neat, neat. Absolutely. So tell me what's well, been happening for you. Apparently, I heard you got a disease. You got the plague. Is that true? I did. I, <laughs> I, I had caught the coronavirus. Um, when we did our last show in uh, March, mm-hmm. we, we sort of caught up, you, me, and Dave Feldman caught up and started talking about this stuff. Um, uh, I, had, I, I think I was infected then, I'm pretty sure. But I came home, I self-quarantined, and I got a test, mm-hmm. and the test was positive. And then, you know, gradually my symptoms went away, and uh, I still have one lingering symptom which is my sense of smell and taste is not fully restored. Right. Oh, no. The week, the week that I was out there in uh, Portland and doing that show with with you, Richard, yeah, I couldn't taste anything but salt. Yeah, you were saying that. And that uh, that was the first time I'd heard of this being, uh, being a symptom. And then, you know, I, I saw in the news, oh, yeah, we've identified a new symptom. Because this yeah. was super early on, wasn't it, Carl? This was like yeah. right when we were all still like out and about and hadn't really grasped what was happening. Right. Yeah, it was right around St. Patrick's Day, around the middle of March. Mm. Yeah. Second week of March, yeah. And uh, we, I was on a, a, a software tour that I was doing for uh, Richard's old company, actually. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Dev Express. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were uh, just trying to decide whether we should – pack it in or not and uh, it just became clear from all the infections that were being reported that yeah we we really need to stop do something else yeah well you don't want audiences to be in danger you you also don't want to be running around like a super spreader and uh, well and i, I yeah. had symptoms and i didn't want to yeah. be coughing and no. you know high-fiving people and sniffing and all that stuff while i'm presenting it's just it just wasn't good. Do they know whether you're going to get your full taste and smell back? Because that's kind of epically not good for a foodie. Yeah, it isn't. And I have seen some science that shows that it uh, the virus actually interferes with the the process of you know smell and taste right in the, right around you know your your nose and the back of your throat and all that stuff. Mm. And but it isn't permanent damage, from what they can tell, that it it will go away. It's just that there's no, you know, there's no timetable. Nobody can tell me when, but but it uh, it looks like it's not permanent. Yeah, I've seen studies that talk about why it happens and uh, and how many people it resolves in, and most people it resolves in. But it, as you say, it does take time. There are people who've had coronavirus who have. Just one weird symptom and no other symptoms, and it's just lasted yeah. like for three months or so. Even though they're not sort of, uh, they're not producing the the virus; it's no longer replicating in them. Uh, right. The damage that it did, uh, you know, stays around. Like seventy eight percent of people who have asymptomatic um, cases of coronavirus have um, evidence in their heart tissue um, that there's been some damage. So that's a scary mm. thing. You know, we're running around thinking, well, you know, I got over this easy. It was nothing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm young. It's, I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, right. You may regret that sort of, you know, 30, 40 years down the road. Yep. Who knows? And, and I, I did get together with, uh, with Carrie uh, and Yogi after I had my second test, mm-hmm. which was negative, mm-hmm. And uh, I was feeling pretty special. And of course, 
you know, Carrie lives out in the boonies and has been sort of self-isolating de facto, haven't yes, you, Carrie? Yes, right. I, I don't actually have to do anything outside of what I normally do in order to be in quarantine. It, it seems like the life I chose to create for myself is what most people call quarantine. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we had been in isolation apart from a every other week trip to the grocery store we have been completely isolated yeah i must admit i've been thriving in the uh, apocalypse as well for some reason it's just uh, all of my classes went online mm -hmm. and i could just sit in my office uh, do all my classes online over zoom and and what have you and uh other than the fact that i missed out on doing some labs uh which i would have really liked to have done um it's actually been it's, it's been quite good for me but now i'm now i'm going into the into the computational chemistry lab uh, every day, uh, work days. So now it's back to a normal life. I'm sure those labs are pretty sparsely populated though, right? Yeah, we've got rules about how many people can be, um, in each, um, set of cubicles. So we used to have, we, we have cubicles of four, you know, little rooms with four people. It's like a three, the three walled room. Um, and it's got four desks, four desks on the perimeter and we can only have, uh, up to three people per, per region. So yeah. Hmm. Wow. Following all the rules. That's all we're doing. And Carrie, I know that you've been busy doing your the thing that you do. The thing that I do. The thing that I do has, has kind of spawned into the things that I do. It's like the last six months have been epically busy and I've been doing new things, which has been awesome, but that was on top of all the things that I was doing anyway. So I'm a bit tired, to be honest. And oh. and um, it, it feels like not that the coronavirus was ever a good thing or will ever be a good thing, but but the the quarantining part of that actually turned out to be a good thing because it, it you know what else did I have to focus on except work? So yeah. I think I wouldn't have done as much as I've done or been able to start all these new things had I had the opportunity to go play, which I didn't have. So mm. from a work perspective, the, the, of course, the coronavirus sucks, but the quarantining was actually quite helpful for getting things done in my case anyway. Boy, in my case too. We're very lucky that we can, that we can get away with that, you know, because there's a lot of people for whom, you know, if they don't go right. to work, um, they don't eat, they don't pay rent. And yep. uh, so we're kind of, you know, while I, I agree for me, it's quarantine has not been too onerous, but you know, I'm, I'm very well aware that uh, we're lucky. <laughs> we should uh, thank our blessings in that, in that instance. Absolutely. Yeah. I, d I do feel like I've been mostly insulated from, from what a lot of people are going through with this because of my location and all because of and also because of what I do. So yeah, you're right. I do feel very lucky. Uh, the circumstances were such that it, it didn't actually or it hasn't actually changed day-to-day -day life for me very much at all and I'm very thankful for that. Well, I jumped into software um trying to solve some problems around um when people get together online you know, for conferences and things that I've 
spoken at all my life and Richard has spoken at mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the things that we miss about these, about these get togethers like Keto Fest and like software conferences is being able to see our friends and being able to walk up to somebody in a room and, and talk to them and, uh, you know, people that you admire, people whose books you've read, uh, you know, just to be able to say thank you or, or, or have a quick conversation. That's essentially what, uh, the thing that I've been working on, but you know, that's been a hobby sort of like on the back burner. The tour that I was doing with Dev Express turned into a, a YouTube show. So that has been sort of the main focus. And along the way, I've learned a lot. Well, I actually have one of the things that I have been working on is YouTube. And that really all came about. I know for, for someone like you, Carl, who has all the techno and the studio and everything, you know, recording videos and such isn't difficult at all. But I found that quite difficult to do cooking videos and things like that on my own. But in March, actually, a week before the lockdown started, I had a house guest who a lot of you are familiar with, the uh, (laughs) favorite keto trucker, Yogi Parker. Um, He damaged his shoulder and was in a lot of pain and decided that he needed to take a break from trucking and he wanted to work on some some things uh, when you and I uh, spoke to him on the podcast Carl he was working on um, some qualifications in nutrition and he really needed to take a break physically but he wanted to take a break to kind of work on some of the other passions that he had around helping people in the keto space particularly those in the trucker world yeah. so he he came to stay so that we could actually work on some stuff while his shoulder was healing and um a week later he got stuck here <laughs> because yeah, of the coronavirus. So mm. he actually um, lives in San Diego, but so he came at the beginning of March and he's still here. And <laughs> so we have been, we've actually like, we're making a lot of lemonade out of lemons and we have been working very hard for the last five months on all sorts of new things one of which is the YouTube channel. We now have a YouTube channel. I got to tell you, Carrie, that you figured it out because it looks so good. Uh, oh, thank your, you. your, your YouTube show. She thank has you. a very tall cameraman, which is very useful <laughs> if you're doing cooking. <laughs> yeah. I, I do. If you've never, if you've never seen Yogi, if you've never experienced Yogi in person, I like to he's think a big that unit. I, he, he is, he's, he's quote, <laughs> A lot of person. He is. <laughs> and I like, in my mind, we're the same height, and then I see us in videos no. together, and I'm like, <laughs> I look like a pixie. So, anyway, so we started our YouTube channel. Um, that's been going very, very well. Um, Yogi's very fun, and he brings his own kind of 
ex-trucker vibe to to everything. Um, we're kind of the yin and yang. I'm the, you have to weigh everything. And Yogi's like, <laughs> oh, yada, like the Swedish chef, you know, like, oh, a bit of this and a bit of that. And, you know, and so I'm a professionally trained pastry chef. You guys <laughs> right. measure to the gram. <laughs> right. I have that disease too, Carrie. I'm, you know, you're always asking me, like you when you came over, I had made some, <laughs> what were they, ginger... Ginger, they were ginger fabulous, cakes. whatever they were. Gingerbread and cakes. Gingerbread cakes, yeah. And so, uh, and you're like, give me the recipe. I'm like, oh, I got to try to remember. <laughs> so, it would be interesting to do, uh, if, if I came to your, uh, you know, to your place and we did a video where I just sort of made something and you followed me behind <laughs> and said, how much, how was that? How much was that? I'm like, yeah, about that much. Yeah, you you could ask Yogi how that's going because because I've given him worksheets and when he's he's developing new recipes for the blog or he's also working on his first cookbook when he's doing that I'm like that saying write it down write it down like <laughs> and, and so now he has worksheets now and and I'll be working on something and I'll kind of yell to the kitchen like you're writing it down. The thing is, I got to the point where I can intuit ratios. Like, I just intuitively know how much of this goes in when I have how much of that. Right. You know? But so being I guess, able to reproduce it exactly is the mark of professional. Of, of course. Of a professional of chef. Course. You and I, Carl, will never be professional chefs. We, we no. will aspire to be, but <laughs> we've got to write down a lot of stuff, apparently. Uh, yeah, apparently. And have worksheets before we become real chefs. No, so. it, it, it's just that I'm, you know, I want people to – if they go to the blog for a recipe, I want to know, I want them to be successful and I want Absolutely. it to work for oh, them. You, you're so, doing it yeah. right. We, it's Absolutely. us that have the deficit. Yeah, I'm making a joke about <laughs> us, not a joke about you. The, um, the, and, but, of course, the other thing is that Yogi doesn't do the baking stuff. Yogi does the, the really like the everyday, the meat, the you, what, what are you eating for dinner tonight stuff, which right, is right, not right. nearly as – you don't. You can kind of be the Swedish chef with those things, a bit of this mm-hmm. and a bit of that, and and it yeah. still all works. So we've been working on YouTube. Um, Yogi has been working on his first cookbook, so that's super exciting. Um, and he's also just this is one of his lifelong, maybe not lifelong, but keto lifelong. Um, dreams was after spending seven years on a truck li- listening to everybody else's podcast, he kind of had this secret like dream to maybe have his own. And so mm-hmm. we, it's not out yet, but he has been recording. Uh, he's recorded, I think, four episodes now with various people. Um, and he's got various other people, uh, on the docket, so he's gonna, and we're gonna get a a bunch of episodes recorded, um, and then we're gonna launch his podcast up on in all the places. We don't actually know how to do that yet, but we'll figure it out. Nice. So, but that's Yogi's thing. So he's about to launch that. It's called the Fatty Joe Show, <laughs> and um, catchy. So that's coming. Um, cookbooks, uh, I'm, I'm still, I've still got several cookbooks in progress. That's just, you know, the way I am. Yeah. I noticed like you have a certification for ice cream masters. (laughs) What is that all about? uh, Well, apart from cookbooks and Yogi has his cookbook that he's working on, um, 
The thing that has really happened for me this year has been masterclasses. I kind of did a trial holiday cooking masterclass last fall, which was very successful. And then I did a soup masterclass in the winter. And then coronavirus happened and nobody wanted to do anything because everybody was trying to take care of themselves and figuring out the new world. But in... um, June, I launched, everyone was clamoring for an ice cream masterclass. So I did an ice cream masterclass in June, which was just unbelievably successful. And then, so I ran it again in July and again, wildly successful. So I'm running it again in August. Actually, uh, enrollment closes in a few days. So I'm going to run it again in August. Out of that, the, the folks in June that went through the course, of course, they're now ice cream ninjas now they can like make the best ice cream nice. um so i've decided and this is actually a kind of a secret almost lifelong dream for me was to do something called the ice cream of the month club where i just had a bunch of ice people who just loved ice cream as making ice cream as much as i did that we would i i create new recipes every month and you know Mm. it would just be a really fun monthly thing and uh the june ice cream graduates were super excited about that so i did launch the ice cream of the month club and actually today is the first day of the ice cream august the first the first day of the ice cream of the month club so i have a bunch a lot of uh ice cream of the month club members and we're just gonna do awesome ice cream things very cool every month so that that's been that's I think that's what you're talking about. That's been yeah. the big big thing. Yep. Uh, I want to jump back to the coronavirus and uh, because it is so engulfing so many of our lives here. Um, I know people yeah. who have lost family and friends, and it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. to watch and uh, a little bit infuriating um, from my perspective here. Uh, but uh, I want to just go back to uh, a resource that uh, Dave and Richard and I talked about in the last show, which is Dr. John Campbell. Yes, yes, I yes, can- yes. Yeah, we can't stress enough how awesome this guy is. He's a doctor from the UK, and it, it seems like every day he has a sort of state-of-the-world kind of uh, you know statistics that he's keeping. But every once in a while, he finds some science that's encouraging or distressing or adds to the story and uh and it's real stuff like uh, he he doesn't uh mess around with speculation but the thing that really bugs me and that has been getting on my nerves uh, and and is actually a little bit even more so maybe even infuriating is to see people whose opinions we have respected in the past Mm -hmm. sort of jumping on some of these uh, fringe kind of speculative bandwagons where, uh, you know, where they're not qualified to, um, to, to, to add that kind of speculation to the story. And I'm not going to call out names, but Richard and I have both noticed that what, you know, who he's saying that or she's saying that. Yeah. I would say that some of the people who at the beginning of the year, I, considered heroes people who i respected who um who had opinions um that i would consider without you know i'd certainly do some background checking but you know i i I consider them to be well reasoned and to 
thought out opinions and and um and I must admit some of these people now I just consider people with opinions. Um, you know, among the, 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 the crowd, the noise of the crowd, um, uh, they no longer, uh, uh, they no, no longer seem to have the, the critical, uh, uh, thinking that, um, that I believe that they had at the beginning of the year. And I, I must admit that's caused me to go back and look at some of the things they've said in the past and apply some critical thought and say, well, do I really believe that opinion? Of theirs that that I used to accept, and um, in most cases, most cases, um, uh, the things that brought me to a low carb uh, 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 diet and uh, an approach for diabetes are the things that brought them, and they are well supported in in science. So I feel right. fairly comfortable that I wasn't led astray. Um, but you know, it, it part of the thing, the process of uh, becoming a scientist is not just learning things, but also uh, it's an apprenticeship. It's learning how to think, and um, I think that's probably a good thing to actually um, apply a little bit of uh, critical thought. When it, no matter who tells you something, um, check it out. Look at the look at their sources. Think to right. yourself, how can they know what they what they just said? Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that's that's actually useful useful um, experience for all of us. And uh, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, you, you as humans, we're we're fallible, right? I mean, we we yeah. it's human nature for us to anyone any one of us to when we don't know the answer to something that is manifesting itself as a crisis. And that's what this is, right? And we don't know why this happens. We don't know why it happened. And it, it's just natural to make stuff up. And well, we take we a first st- approximation. We, we, we sort of take a guess at the things that we can possibly guess at. And where we don't have information, we fill in the gaps. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, right. We, we, we tend to do that. That's part of the human. That's, that's how humans pattern match. It's how our brains work. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's built in. But of course, you know, and this has been going on for, uh, you know, the beginning of recorded time. I mean, this is what stories are about. This is what mm-hmm. Greek mythology is about. Uh, I mean, it's all there in our history. So, right. Uh, you know, you, you just have to be very careful that you're not um, going down that path of, you know, oh, it makes sense that this was manufactured in a lab somewhere and it's, you know, it, it was weaponized on the world. Come on, right. viruses have existed for yeah. billions of years. Yeah, they have, literally. And um, the thing is, uh, with these conspiracy theories, the number of people who you have to posit would have been able to keep the secret is in the hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Um, you know, so it's I mean, people used to say this about 9-11. They'd say, you know, it was a false flag, you know, it was a government conspiracy, and and – I would say, well, one, I saw the planes go into the building. So, so it wasn't a controlled demolition. And secondly, can you imagine how many people have got to be holding a secret, holding in their hearts the secret that the government, um, uh, conspired to do all of this? I mean, you know, this is, it, it beggars belief. It, 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 it's, it's beyond a reasonable, um, uh, uh, supposition. So, you know, it, 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 we, we have to kind of push back on these things when we hear them. And I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, so, um, uh, and I'll go, I'll be a little bit political here, but my point isn't to be political. It's to, it's to talk about what we know and what we can know. 
and you'll you'll probably have heard about hydroxychloroquine. This is a mal- anti-malarial that um, uh, that was used in China, um, in Wuhan, um, out of desperation because they had people you know dying all over the place and. This just happened to be a cheap drug that they had at their disposal and somebody said, well, heck, let's try it. And it turned out that uh, they gave it to some people and they seemed to do better. And the, and there was a small study done and then there was a, a another small study done in France. And um, the, the basis of the French study um, was that uh, the, uh, they tested, I think it was like 16, 16 people and, and nine controls or something, 16 treatments and nine controls, which is very small. I mean, the chance, if you were to look at what somebody's survival rate uh, from an infection of COVID would be like, if you were to take a population of, say, 100 people, you'd probably find that 20 people would get it severely, 80 would be fine, five would get it really bad, and, and one would die out of 100 right. people. And um, but the but depending on which person <laughs> you, you're looking at, if you were to say, look, I'm going to take a sample of ten people, and I'm going to see if I can work out um, uh, work out the uh, the uh, benefit of a treatment. Depending on which of those hundred people you chose ten out of, you would get vastly different results. So the size of the study is important. And in the case of the French study, um, four of the people in the treatment arm were lost to the treatment and weren't even counted. One of them died and wasn't counted as an outcome. Two of them graduated to being on ventilators in another facility. They weren't uh, counted in the outcome. And one of them didn't have uh, coron- turned out he didn't have coronavirus at all. He just had a cold. So, mm. you know, uh, th- it's a very small study. So being a small study, you're getting just 10 people out of the 100. And so, you know, you're, um, you could entirely skew your results by doing that. Um, and secondly, that, you know, they, 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 that they, 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 it wasn't a well designed study. Let me put it that right, way. Right, right. So, um, you know, the, the president of the U- United States saw that. And he's desperate, obviously, for um, for good news. I mean, you know, he needs good news, and we all need good news, essentially, on coronavirus. And so, everybody's instinct is to sort of latch onto any possible uh, hopeful news. And he he basically, uh, uh, during one of the coronavirus briefings, he said, uh, "I've heard good news out of a study uh, on this hydroxy. Some people call it hydroxychloroquine. Um, significant results." Now, it's interesting. Significance means something very important to a scientist. It means that the results could could not be uh, gotten from chance. It's, it means that you've chosen a large enough group in your sample um, that you could, that you, <clears throat> it's a very low chance. It's less than one in 20 chance that you pick just 10 people who were going to do well anyway right. um, uh, in your study. And so the point I'm really trying to make is that he couldn't know that there were significant results. And so when uh, immediately he got uh, left the podium, uh, Dr. Fauci um, took the podium and said, look, um, we don't know, we can't know, and we're going to do tests to find out. And and that there is a scientific um, uh, explanation of, uh, you know, what we know, wh- what we can know, and how we propose to uh, work it out. So... Um, you know, it, it's the, the the point really is that you can look at a small study and think, oh, I've got meaningful data. But until you actually, the, the best way to do it is to randomise. And this, um, yes. you know, if you random if you randomly collect ten people out of your hundred, then you've got a better chance of having a broad spread across the different um, 
uh, uh, the different uh, characteristics of, of, of human response to your treatment, um, you've got a better chance of getting a, a, a biologically, statistically significant uh, result in your data. And you want you also want a larger uh, sample, and you want a control group as well. Yeah, so you random, control. Yeah, you randomly select, uh, say, a thousand people out of a hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. and and input them into two groups, and one you give the treatment, and the other you don't. Yeah, and the other thing is that you don't tell. So the the people who you don't tell the the, the, the patients what they're getting because if right. if a if you tell a patient, look, we're giving you the placebo, their response yeah. is going to be different than if you say we're going to give you this experimental treatment. Right. Um, because you know we're very complicated machines, and we have these uh, we have very complicated oh, immune systems, and two people sitting next to each other, two twins with identical DNA um, sitting next to each other may have entirely different immune systems. Mm, yeah. And then and then it further uh, becomes political because the person who said that hydroxychloroquine is not a viable treatment, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Fauci, now all sorts of conspiracy theories are, are showing up to explain that. Like I've mm. seen people say that, Dr. Fauci invented this virus and he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's uh, in a lab in Wuhan and he's putting it on the world. And of course, he doesn't want anybody to use hydroxychloroquine because it works and he's an evil man and he wants everybody to die. Right. Beggar's belief. It, yeah. it, it makes no sense because the, you'd, you'd have to have tens of thousands of people involved in that conspiracy, none of them letting anything, you know, no whistleblowers. It, it, it just, it's, just, yeah. it's just not reasonable. There is a study showing that the, uh, the closest relative to the, the SARS-CoV-2 is not actually SARS-CoV. It's not SARS-1. Uh, it's actually a bat virus. Um, SARS-1 is actually, uh, I think it's only 70% um, the same DNA as, as SARS-CoV-2. Um, but this bat virus is, is, you know, 93% similar. And you can see that both, well, both of these viruses must have descended from a common ancestor. That's, that's the way, um, uh, evolution works. And the common ants, and you can basically look at these two, two, Viral, viral RNA sequences as a species. And you can say, okay, how, how long has it been since that, that most common ancestor? Um, and the way that you do that is you look at all of the different changes in the DNA and you know roughly how fast these, these viruses mutate. And in the fact, in the case of influenza, it's quite quick. And that's why we have to have a, a, an updated vaccine every year. But in the case of coronavirus, they actually have an error checker. Uh, when they make their copy of their RNA, um uh normally RNA is is quite susceptible to um uh, ultraviolet radiation and a whole bunch of other things that can cause you know a, a, a mistake to happen in the in the reproduction right. but the um, coronavirus uh, RNA dependent RNA polymerase which is this protein that that replicates the virus has an error checker built in uh, very similar to the one that we have in our DNA um uh polymerase that actually um, checks errors and fixes them up as the virus is being replicated. So it actually mutates at a much slower rate. And we've seen it in in, um, in action now for almost six months. So we know how fast 
it um, mutates, which right. is really quite slow. And then you say, okay, well, these two viruses, the bat virus and the SARS-CoV-2, have a certain number of mutations that, that differ from each other, so we can wind the clock backwards. And it turns out it's about 30 years back to the common ancestor of these two viruses. So this wow. thing has been, you know, it's been living in bats for um, for 30 years. These two viruses diverged. Um it's not possible to actually reproduce that kind of um, uh, ran- the, the kinds of random mutations that we see in the in the RNA in a lab. It's just way too complicated. We're, we're just not that smart. We're not smart enough to be able to pretend to be evolution. So, um, so literally, um, we have very good evidence that the, that the virus is. Has, has evolved over 30 years since its last common ancestor with this other bat virus. Uh, so it, 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 from a, from a technical point of view, it, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, you know, this is a gain of function mutation right. in a lab that's been paid for by the NIH and the NIH is run by Anthony Fauci and therefore he's, you know, and he's also involved in making the virus and it, it's a, it, you, yeah. you're, you're building a very, very complicated story uh, to explain something quite simple. So, Occam's um, yeah. razor, my friend. Yes, the simplest the s- answers are usually the best. Right. And then also that goes hand in hand with Hanlon's razor, which is right. never attribute to malice what can be explained with stupidity. Exactly. Or incompetence. <laughs> well, I, you look, I, I, I think that uh, some of these um, – uh, these uh, conspiracy propagators, and I'm not talking about people, our friends on 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 Facebook who just pick up these things and just you know rip, you know um, share it with their friends. I'm talking about um, you know your Alex Jones of the world and the Breitbart and and yeah. you know the 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 um, uh, probably <laughs> probably Russian troll farms and and lo- lots of people whose interest is in pushing a particular agenda and any any conspiracy theory that allows them to propagate that um they um they latch onto um you know they they uh, uh, essentially it, it beggars belief so i would I, I i talk to my facebook friends i have friends on all all across a political spectrum and i do talk yeah, to them too. from a technical point of view what i understand about it so mm. yeah yeah all right Kelly. so as a consumer the just just looking at it as a pure, you know, Facebook person. The thing mm-hmm. that frustrates me is half of the medical professionals that I follow in some capacity are are out there saying um, quarantine is killing us, masks are going to make you ill, like the whole thing is a hoax, it's not dangerous, we need herd immunity, you know, that kind of like you're, you're all being... Your sheep. Your sheep, you're, if mm-hmm. you wear a mask, you're an idiot. Like So half of the medical professionals I follow are, are saying that. The other half of the medical professionals mm. are saying... This is real. I work in the ER. I'm seeing what this does to people. Wear your mask. It makes a difference. Keep on social distancing. Don't let the kids go back to school. Like, don't be selfish. Like, do the things that we're being asked to do. And so for people who are not, who are just, which is most of us, who are just like 
standing here watching here going, we don't know because I don't have the, the all the background that Richard does to, to understand some of this stuff. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. So we're all sitting here going, wait, what? Like half the people we respected are saying one yep. thing. The other half are saying the other. They're both po- the polar thing. opposites. How, yeah. how are we, like the majority of us, just like regular Joes, how are we supposed to know what in the world to do? And so it, it boils down to who do you believe most and, and so people are yeah. siding with one half of medical professionals or the other half. We That's don't, sad. they don't know which is right and which is wrong. So you end up just taking the side of the, of the, of the line that you think feels most credible. I mean, and what kind of a decision is that to base anything on? Well, it's also, right. we're, we're taking the sides of, uh, people whose narrative fits what we want to do, whose the narrative yeah. fits our agenda. Therefore, that's the one that we uh, latch on to. You know, I have kids, they're home, they've been home for three months, they're driving me nuts, go back to school so I can get some work mm. done, you know, uh, or, uh, or the opposite, right? Uh, it, it fits our agenda, therefore, that's what we most conveniently latch on to. But that, to me, doesn't seem like the way that we're going to beat this thing. No, it isn't. Because we're completely divided. And it it feels to me like nobody, and I don't mean the the people who do actually know, but but the vast majority of us have no idea which is right and which is wrong. So we're just left to make stuff up because what else can we do? I'm sure we're going to alienate some of our listeners by talking about this this way. I've and, no idea. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but um, you know, Richard and I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sorry that people feel that way, but but Richard and I and Carrie, we we just want to, you know, we want to know what we know and what we can't know. We're going to uh, just put on the shelf hmm. until we do. Yeah, I think we tend to. Um, most humans uh, live in tribes, even if we we no longer live in one village. We have we make tribes across the world that that think that that are simpatico with us and mm. and that echo our beliefs and and that's a comfortable place to be um, around people who think the same way that you do. Right. Um, and and that's part of the reason that you know it, it's it's not just happening in the US. It's happening in Australia too. It's happening in the UK. It's happening in Europe. It's it's happening all over the world. So. Um, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that we've moved from a uh, living in villages to living on 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 the internet, and so right. we're building our own little villages on the internet that uh, have people that we like, that we believe in, that who are simpatico, as I say. So uh, that's that's quite a problem. I think it's a uh, you know from an evolutionary biology standpoint, it's 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 actually uh, a harmful problem. In the human, in the design of humans, that that we do this, and I don't know how to get out of it. But my, I guess I come down to believing that all humans are capable of outsmarting a virus as long as we don't outsmart ourselves. Yeah. So I'm going to take a uh, take the role of uh, essentially explaining what I know, what I can know, what I can't know, what I don't know, mm. and then pointing out the same. Um, when other, when other people, you know, if somebody posts on Facebook and, you know, um, 
and and uh, and you, and you and you look into the, the the evidence basis behind it. If you if you if that's something that you have an understanding of, um, you should talk out. You should you should say, look, um, uh, you know, f- for example, Sweden um, didn't uh, have a, as harsh a lockdown as the rest of the of Europe, and essentially that they were they were volunteering to be a control for the rest of Europe, um, and. Uh, there are a lot of people who, uh, to Carrie's point, there are experts on both sides who say one side will say, see, Sweden did the right thing, and the other will say, see, Sweden did the wrong thing, and they're looking at the exact same data, and they're just mm-hmm. having a different um, interpretation of that data. Right. So, you know, I, I'm my from uh, essentially what I'm choosing to do is to go back to the data and look at it. Myself, as as uh, and 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 for example, um, in the case of Sweden, you can look at uh, Europe does a very good job of 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 counting the number of deaths every week in every country, and so they've got this data going back twenty or thirty years, and you can look at okay, how many deaths were there in week thirteen of this year in Sweden? At, compared to how many deaths there are in week 13 of every other year for five years. And that's something called an excess death uh, analysis. And the, the average of, of values over the, the last five years, you would expect this year to be between, um, roughly two standard deviations either side of that average. That's, that's your bell curve, you know, um, 95% of, of, uh, of, of years will all be in that range, and if something is slightly out of that range, then it you know there, there's a chance that it is random. But there's but there's an uh, but you could pro- pretty much say if it's if, if it's more than two standard deviations above the average, or two standard deviations below the average, then you can say well something weird happened. Yeah. Well, in the case of uh, you know if something is uh, three standard deviations, then the likelihood of that happening is 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 extremely rare. It's like one in a thousand. Um, and if four standard deviations, it's it's something like, uh, I, I don't know the precise number, but it's in the tens of thousands. And, um, you know, something that's uh, six standard deviations, um, you know, the, the, there's no there's no sportsman who is six sta- standard deviations above the mean of other sportsmen in their field. So, right. you know, this is, it's never happened in sports, for example. Um, well, Sweden on week 13 of this year had 12.93 standard deviations above the mean of excess deaths. Wow. Wow. So, you know, that's so highly unlikely. Six sigma is six standard deviations, and that's what engineers build uh, bridges to tolerance of six sigma. So, you know, they, they, they build a bridge so it can hand and handle an event that is six standard deviations above the mean. Well, you know, this is, you know, 12.93. So, you know, that is something that we can know. We can know that this year was highly, had highly unusual amount of deaths. So, so unlikely to be by random chance that you know that that something causal happening happened. So, um, and we can look at that data and we can say, okay, that you know, Sweden's policy choices, um, uh, in as much as they, uh, you know, the the vile reproduction and the the cases and the and the resulting deaths, um, are are all a part of that. Um, you can say that their policy was probably not the, the right way to go. Wow. So, Richard, you probably know this, one, because you're Richard, and two, because you live in Australia, which is next door to New Zealand. Now, mm-hmm. all, all I know is that I saw somewhere, so it might not even be true, I saw somewhere on the internet that New Zealand was, like, done. They're, they're like, co- completely corona-free. Yes. What did Almost. they do? 
Okay. So, and Australia was corona free, uh, for quite some time as well. Um, uh, what they did was, uh, okay. So the first thing you've got to say is that, uh, Australia and New Zealand are on the arse end of the world. So we get to see what happened to everybody else first. Right. Until it gets to us. So we had the advantage of, of a heads up. We could see it creeping out of, uh, you know, it, it was in China. Everybody could see it was in China and people thought, oh, well, the, you know, the Chinese Communist Party will lock that thing down and it'll be like SARS-1. And then it sort of pops up in Italy. It pops up in Spain. It pops up in Iran and pops up in South Korea. Uh, and then everyone's thinking, well, maybe those countries they surely they should be able to contain it. Uh, and then it pops up, well, it popped up in America on the same day as it popped up in South Korea. Um, and you know, the, the, uh, so when, at that point, we can then say, wait a minute, it's going everywhere. So they closed Australia and New Zealand both closed down international travel. And, and they, and, and that was probably the, the best thing. Plus the fact that they were at the end of the world, they were able to see it coming from a lot further away. Um, now, Australia would have been okay. We've, we've, we've got, um, we've had 200 deaths in a country of 25 million. So we're doing okay. Um, but, but uh, a month ago we had 100 deaths. So we've had a big surge in the past, past month. And that was basically because there were some inbound tourists. So, um, or inbound, sorry, in, uh, inbound travellers uh, who bought the virus in from outside the country. And what we did was everybody coming into the country had was basically put up in a hotel for 14 days as a uh, enforced quarantine. And in uh, New South Wales, they had the army on the doors and basically you couldn't go out of that room. Uh, you, you were uh, stuck in the room. They would feed you. They, they put you up in a nice hotel. You got nothing to complain about. You got, you know, you got TV. You got, um, uh, you know, you got internet. So, um, and a, and a telephone. So it's not too bad. Um, and there are worse, you know, there are worse things to happen to, right. um, uh, and so, uh, so essentially that, sort of barrier between people coming in and people going into your community that was the sort of the that that was the trick that was how australia and new zealand managed to get uh, get out of the problem well there was a problem in victoria uh one of our states in australia the southern state um capitals melbourne both Sydney and Melbourne, the major cities in Australia, um, uh, have the most inbound travellers. And so there were quarantines in both cities. I think there might have been one in Brisbane for a while as well and probably WA for uh, people coming from the UK and from South Africa. And the problem in Melbourne was that uh, one of the uh, – the, so they didn't hire, use the army. They hired um, uh, private security guards. They they. they they recruited them on WhatsApp. They had no training in 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 uh, what what it meant to do a quarantine. And one of these one of the guards traded sexual favours with one of the guests coming through um, in exchange for letting them go to McDonald's and go down the pub for a beer. And oh, all of the current the current cases that are all coming now all stem from that one incident. So it just goes to show you, you just have to do something. Something stupid once. Uh, we've got to, <laughs> to, 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 to be as lucky as New Zealand, you have to be lucky. You, you have to be not unlucky once. And that's yeah. essentially that, that's, and plus they're a smaller country. They're only four million. So, you know, the, the problem is a lot less difficult or a lot less uh, problematic than say, uh, America with 328 million. So you've got a much different size problem. So that example of what happened in Melbourne was basically the lack of social distancing. You could say that. 
Yeah, sexual favours is uh, not being socially distant, yes. So so the security guard was infected. The people that at the McDonald's that this person um, uh, transacted with, um, uh, somebody there was infected, and then they went down the pub. So, you know, this is uh, – it doesn't take much. And then, of course, if 80% of the people who get infected are asymptomatic, which means they don't have symptoms, mm. uh, they don't know they're infected, they have the virus reproducing in them, uh, their immune system is working on it and it will successfully um, uh, uh, get rid of the virus after you know, um, eight or nine days mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they won't ever know about it. And so they've picked up the <laughs> virus, they're, they're infectious for eight days, um, they don't know about it and they interact with a lot of people being absolutely convinced that they don't have the virus. Mm -hmm. And somebody who isn't lucky enough to be in the 80% that is asymptomatic all of a sudden comes down with a cold um, and uh, and maybe that person goes gets gets tested. But what about the other 20 people that person's infected? Eventually, now you've got... uh, you know, eruptions happening all over the, all over the place. And then, um, uh, and then you've got, you know, 1% of the people that you infect will probably die. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a very sobering, um, it's a very sobering to think I could have the virus and kill somebody. Yes. It really is. I mean, you wouldn't think of committing murder. Nobody wants to, no. nobody even well, thinks normal about people doing don't. that. Yeah. yeah. So, but that is in fact what you could be doing. Um, all right. So, anyway, on a much lighter note, I think we ought to <laughs> tell everybody that we do plan to have a keto fest online. Yay! Yes. Good news. <laughs> We're yeah. not announcing anything right now, but uh, except that we'll put up a website, ketofest2020.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, we're not going to say, we're not going to tip our hand, Richard, but uh, I have been working on some Calvary amazing working stuff. working very hard on some technology, yeah. Yes. And, and I've been trying to break it. <laughs> suffice it to say that I don't think anybody has had the experience that we're offering. I don't think yeah, it's, it's out gonna, there it's now. It's not just Zoom. Yeah. yeah. It's not just a Zoom conference. This is, uh, this is technology that's going to replicate uh, the social interactions that we get from a, uh, from a conference like KetoFest. And there is no other conference like KetoFest. It no. is highly social. Um, and so it's an interesting problem to solve. Uh, and I think Carl's got, uh, Carl's getting very close to being able to solve that. So, um, yeah, this is very exciting. Yeah. It is extremely exciting. So that's about all we're going to say. Mom's the word right now, but Keto Fest Online will be a completely different experience from any other online conferences that you have uh, been to in the past. I promise. Looking forward to it. That's it. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's about it. That's about an hour. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. You don't have a recipe, Carl. <laughs> you can have a recipe if you can have a podcast. Come on. Little I know you didn't this, prepare anything. Make that. it up. I want to see this. I want to see this. <laughs> Make Carrie cry. Then do this to taste. Do this to taste and you know, cook it till it's about ready. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a cooking story. You know, okay. like I'm all about sous vide, right? You are yes. all about sous vide. I love my sous vide. And so mm-hmm. uh, I even do ribeyes for an hour, hour and a half in the sous vide and then sear them. Mm-hmm. But I have a smoker, and I decided, hey, I wonder what it would be like to smoke a ribeye. Well, let me tell you, folks, it's fantastic. <laughs> nice. 
And, and my invite is in the mail or? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so I've got a quick recipe. Um, this is something that I just came up with uh, the other day. I, I often, you know, I make stocks all the time. I, I, I make uh, uh, pork hock, uh, smoked pork hock stock and oh, yeah. beef stock. And so I always have a big bowl of stock in my fridge. And what I've been doing lately is I, I take some kimchi, which is a, a fermented cabbage, Korean fermented cabbage uh, with peppers in it. It's, it's, quite, it's, it's a unique taste. I take some kimchi, a little bit of stock, warm it in the microwave, and then blitz it in a magic bullet. Mm. And it makes a delicious, hearty warming in both the warmth terms as well as the pepper terms um, soup. Well, uh, the other day I had no stock. Um, in fact, well, I did have stock, but it had gone off and I wasn't going to put it in kimchi soup. So kimchi soup is already off enough. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so what I did was I thought to myself, what am I going to use as a liquid with this stock? Just kind of thicken it a little bit and give it a little bit of a like a gel texture. And I thought, right. cheese. <laughs> Oh. So, so I got some cheddar and I got some sodium tricitrate and go. some boiling water and I made up our cheesy sauce and yep. then I added kimchi to it and I blitzed it. Oh my God. It is so good. Wow. It, it, it the middle of winter here. It's, 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 it's now become a staple. So, so that's, uh, that that's my good, cheapy Richard. recipe. Yeah, and, you know, just add add it to taste. You know, I don't, I don't have actual <laughs> values here. And cook it for as long as you think it'll need I'll, to be cooked. I'll send you, know? you a copy of the worksheet, Richard. <laughs> I the expect worksheet. a worksheet, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, yeah, there's yeah. nothing as good as stock that you reduce and reduce and reduce and reduce and then add butter mm. to. Uh, you know, it's mm. the kind of umami Monte that makes your lips stick together. Mm. Oh, my God. Yes, I can taste it right now. Yeah. What about you, Carrie? You got anything you want to share? Um, Recipe-wise? Yeah. Um, Not off the top of my head. All right. I'm an introvert. We can't do that. If you want we my recipe, buy my cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I do have to say that there is a new recipe that goes up on the blog every week. So, there's a constant stream of new things that you all haven't seen yep. um, since we last recorded, what, six, seven months ago um there's a new recipe every week so there's plenty of free recipes for everybody if you just go to the blog fantastic and give us the url carrie it's carriebrown.com because i can actually remember that <laughs> <laughs> hey great catching up with you guys yeah thanks a lot yeah likewise and richard thanks for keeping us sane yes yeah that's a that's a big job <laughs> it is <laughs> okay guys it's been a pleasure all right ta-ta and see you next time ciao Bye. Bye.